Welcome back. We're back after a little break, and we have a great guest today. My good friend, Andy Arick, is here. Coach Arick is the offensive coordinator and O-line coach at Princeton University, where he also played offensive line. Before Princeton, Andy also coached for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Rutgers, Bucknell, and Albright College. Andy gives a lot of insight to the world of college football and practical advice for athletes and their families. Enjoy. All right, Andy, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing, Nate? I'm good. I'm good. Um, what's going on in Princeton, New Jersey right now with the football team? Uh, we finished spring practice uh, last Saturday, so now uh, the guys are transitioning back into the weight room uh, four days a week, so uh, you know it's a little bit different time for them, but uh, you know, spring went well, and now as a coaching staff, we're getting ready to hit the road in a week here. And you guys were awesome last year. I just, I think I was just checking before we were talking. You guys finished in the, ranked in the top 10 in the country. Um, yes. And are you guys having to bring back uh, a lot of new faces or are you guys going to be uh, reloading? Or what were you guys at with um, how you guys look for next year? Uh, I mean, we expect to continue to be uh, a good team. Obviously, we're, we're, we're still graduating a lot. We lose uh, the player of the year who's our quarterback, who's the two-time player of the year in the Ivy League. And uh, a couple prolific wide receivers, and and then also two first team All Ivy linebackers. So there's spots to to be filled, but uh, we feel like we've done a good job recruiting and developing. So the guys behind them have been waiting for their opportunity to to get those reps and you know kind of take it over themselves. And you guys have been there a while as a staff. So I mean, like all of the guys on the team are all all guys that your staff has recruited, basically, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, Coach Race has been there since 2010. Yeah, 2010. So been a while now. It's been a long process for him building it up. And you guys have been just, I feel like you guys have been on a steady incline since then, like that you got every year, it seems like you've just been a little bit stronger, a little bit better. Yes, definitely. And uh, we had we had a couple of years in between championships where we were a little down, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, injuries and whatnot, um, you know, I think we're at a point now where our depth is strong enough where uh, we can overcome any possible injuries and you know continue to have success. Yeah, talking about depth, um, I feel like you guys are pretty famous for having more than one quarterback on the field more often than most. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that started uh, back in 2012. Uh, James Perry was our offensive coordinator. He's now the head coach at Brown. And his his rationale was, if I'm going to put my best 11 guys on the field and two of them are quarterbacks and sometimes three of them are quarterbacks, then I'm going to get them on the field and just find creative ways to, you know, get them the ball uh, as much as possible. So, um, you know, 2013, we had some packages where we had three quarterbacks on the field at the same time. You know, obviously one of them is probably more of a true quarterback, while another one can do a bunch of different things, you know, as far as receiver, running back. And then the other one was more of a tight end type body. Um, And then it's kind of morphed into 2016. uh, We had checking off who's with the Cardinals and then John Lovett, our quarterback this past year, he was um, a junior with checking off and hopefully they'll both be playing on Sundays next year. Um, But there's no way we couldn't both have him on the field at the same time. So um, again, we had to be creative with really was that scenario was John Lovett could play anywhere. So it was, how do we get him on the field and get him the ball um, and also get him some quarterback reps. And really it was about when we wanted to give him quarterback reps, because we knew he's such a good runner you just kind of have the other guys a little bit of a decoy. Um, but it's benefited John because now John's probably going to get drafted as a tight end fullback type guy. And he's got a lot of film out there of him 
lining up at receiver, catching the ball. We had him blocking some, um, not really coaching him on it. He's just, he's just a football player. So, you know, it was all about getting the best players on the field. If that means we have two quarterbacks on the field or three quarterbacks on the field, that's what we did. Yeah. Well, I've actually had some thoughts about like multiple quarterbacks and tell me how this relates to what you've seen or what you guys have done. Um, but I think most people know in the football coaching profession that you are going to win and lose mostly based on the quality of your quarterback. The team with the best quarterback is the team with the best chance to win. Mostly, um, you know, any team, any team I've ever been on when we've been really good, it's because always, because we have a great quarterback. And, um, you know, one of the problems is, 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 you know, Ivy league is a little bit different, but a lot of schools, you know, you're only going to be able to recruit one quarterback a year. And, um, that means, you know, because quarterbacks aren't going to want to go to a school if there's another quarter, you know, if there's too many quarterbacks to compete with, cause it's not like wide receiver where you can have packages for most teams where you're going to have packages where you have four or five of them on the field. Um, and the best 11 play for most teams, it's one quarterback plays no matter who's the best 11, which I think gets to, to your original point. Um, and I was thinking that because of that, um, when you miss, you know, imagine you miss two years in a row you know, trying to get, you know, you get the best quarterback that you think that you can get. And then he gets there and you realize that he's not as good as you thought he was. You do that two years in a row. Now you have a serious gap where you're not going to have the best team because you're not going to have the best player at the most important position. And so my thought was that the, you want to be able to recruit more than one quarterback a year, because the more time, more quarterbacks you recruit, the more chances you have to basically get the best one. Because as much as we all think that when we're recruiting, we know the the good ones from the bad ones, you know, there's just a big wide range on how good they end up being from what you thought they were going to be. And so the more chances you get to have, the more quarterbacks um, on your team, and thus the better chance you have of having the best quarterback. So my idea is, is that if you actually make it part of your offense where you're going to play more than one quarterback at the time, then I think that that sell to the high school athlete as the quarterback coming in, even if there is like an amazing senior quarterback and junior quarterback, or whatever on the roster, you can say like, you don't have to worry about him. If you're part of the best 11, you will play in a way that I think could be really compelling. Um, and then I think also it has a development aspect, like you mentioned. So I don't know, does that sound crazy to you? Does that relate at all to what you guys have no, gone through? That, that definitely relates. And that's, I mean, that's part of the recruiting pitch for us is, you know, don't worry about whether or not you're the number one guy, just make sure you're one of the best skill guys and we'll find a way to get you on the field. Even if you're not the starting quarterback taking every rep behind center, your freshman year, there's ways for us to get you on the field if you're if you're ready to play for us in some capacity. And, uh, you know, we definitely have recruited more quarterbacks for that reason, knowing that that's part of the model that uh, we had within our in our offense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then I remember when you first got to Princeton, I think you weren't coaching the old line yet. And... Um... I remember that the O-line coach at the time had a policy where he was going to play like eight or nine offensive linemen in every game, you know, no matter what. Um, I feel like there's something similar there. Maybe it's not as big of an impact in the recruiting or that wasn't as much of a recruiting thing. It was more of a development thing. I know you could talk about that if if that sounds like right to you. I I carried that on uh, when when Coach Morrissey left. And uh, it's been really beneficial because just your point, you're like you're developing guys and building depth that's different depth than other schools have. Because most of the line coaches think, well, I'm only going to play my starting five, and then someone gets injured, like, I have no idea what's going to happen when this guy goes in the game. He hasn't seen the field in five games. Whereas 2016, I was playing 10 guys. I literally had the backup at every spot, and they were getting 20 snaps a game. Um, and then every year is a little bit different. But if I can get you know, eight to nine guys every year when injuries happen, 
it's not this, you know, green player going out there who hasn't really taken real reps versus real competition and, you know, in the heat of battle as opposed to, you know, mop-up duty. And you just have a better – they have a better feel for the game, but also you have a better feel for how they're going to perform. I mean, that happened this past year. My starting right tackle got hurt versus Yale, and we're playing Penn the last game of the year. And I started a freshman who had been playing 25, 30 snaps a game, and, you know, he went in there and didn't miss a beat and, um, you know, is going to – play a lot of football for us moving forward. I imagine you also um, probably figure out who your best starters are faster by giving the guys six through 10 some more opportunities to step up. Absolutely. And it, and it dictates how good your starter is. It's definitely going to dictate how many reps the backup's going to get because there could be situations where it's 60 to 60%, 40%. And it also could be situations where it's 80, 20, um, depending on how good that starter is for sure. Yeah, that's um, that's so interesting. Now, like, I always wonder how much of that is like just a luxury of being at Princeton or at an Ivy League school, where maybe the the makeup of a roster is different. Like, do you you've been around? I mean, do you think like the gap between say the fifth best offensive lineman and the tenth best offensive lineman at Princeton like has a different like characteristic than like other places you've been, like Rutgers or Albright or Bucknell? Um. Maybe a little bit, but I don't I don't necessarily think it's I think it's just how we've recruited. I don't necessarily think it was product of because the Ivy League is different than those places. I think uh, that I think that model can be used at any level. And I would, you know, if I were not at Princeton or somewhere else, I would still use that model just because I'm such a big believer on how it creates that depth. And, you know, just and it also keeps guys fresh because we're trying to play fast. And if we can get 85 snaps a game, nobody should be taking 85 snaps. That's that's not smart because at the end of the game, you want those guys fresher. So I get, I get my starters 60 snaps a game and I get all these other guys 25 snaps a game. And now next thing you know, I got some serious depth that there's no drop off at any point. There has got to be linemen at basically every program in the country these days that are playing 85 snaps a game. I got to think, I mean, none none of of these other schools are taking their best player out. Absolutely. Nobody, nobody does it. Absolutely. Nobody does it. But when the game's on the line at the end, my guys are fresher because they've gotten a series or two off each each half and they're just they're able to play at a higher level. Do you think that that has a season long impact too or do you think it's just a game thing? Oh, I think it definitely does. I, I especially the last this past season was kind of an anomaly because we were just so good. Uh but 2016 season when we were rotating in and I was playing 10 guys, legitimately 10 guys, we definitely got better and stronger up front as the year went on and it, it showed up on film to the point where, you know, we were definitely a better offensive line and more physical and physically dominating guys up front week 10 versus week one. And uh, you guys lost your offensive coordinator. How did the staff shake up? Did that change anything for you? Yeah, I'm now offensive coordinator and uh, we brought in uh, Brian Flynn from uh, Villanova, who's going to coach the receivers and uh, Mark Rosenbaum, receivers coach has moved the quarterback. So it's uh, it's nice just because there's a lot of continuity in what we're doing. Um, I'm a big believer in the offensive system that we run. So I'm sure as, uh, for Coach Race, for him, it was all about keeping that continuity because we've had a ton of success offensively since 2013. Well, um, I think about 14 years ago when we first met and started coaching together, your career goal was to be the offensive line offensive coordinator um, at Princeton University. Sounds like you accomplished that goal. Are you? I did. Are you yes. all? Are you all set now? I'm set. I'm set. Life is good. Life <laughs> is good. Absolutely. Well, that's that's great. I mean, this is this is what you uh, dreamed of. I know. Um, 
the last two offensive coordinators at Princeton had pretty cool opportunities, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe even more before that. Uh, does that like, does that enter your mind at all, or you still feel the same way you felt 14 years ago? At this point, I feel the same way. I mean, that's we got we got to have success for the, those things even creep in my creep in my head, or those opportunities even present themselves. Um, so right now, I'm just really excited to have the opportunity to to run the show myself and prove that um, we can keep things rolling. Yeah, well, that's 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 so great. I'm uh, obviously very happy for you. Thank uh, you. Um, you know that that actually gets me to some of the other things I want to talk about, which is more you know focus on the recruiting stuff because. You know, you had mentioned 14 years ago when we were at Albright College that you wanted to be the head or be the offensive coordinator, offensive line coach at Princeton. And um, that's because you went there. And I want to know, like, tell me about your recruiting story. I, I, I mean, I remember a little bit, but I, I remember it being interesting. But tell me how that all went down. Well, when I was, I, you know, I was in high school before my senior year, um, I was getting a lot of interest from the Big Ten and Big 12 schools. And, you know, naturally, that was on my radar. I was like, oh, that's where I want to go. So, you know, I went and camped at a bunch of places and, you know, continued to get recruited by those schools throughout the fall. Nobody had offered me a scholarship um, leading into December. And early on, probably, you know, junior spring, you know, Ivy Leagues came calling just because I had good grades and I tested well. And, you know, my dad was like, well, you should just, you know, keep it as an option, save a visit for an Ivy League school just to check it out and see what it's like. So um, kind of as the process played out, I ended up taking a, an official visit to to Princeton. Um, I actually was going to take a visual, official visit to Harvard, but they told me I had to commit before I went to visit. And I didn't understand why. I'd never been to Boston. And I was like, well, I'm not going to commit before I visit. I've never even seen your place before. So that turned me off. Ended up check, uh, checking out Princeton and, and loved it. And you know, took an official visit to Nebraska, thought they were going to offer me a scholarship. They ended up wanting me to be as a preferred walk-on. And to me, it was more about proving people right as opposed to proving people wrong uh, by not giving me a scholarship. So, um, and the fact, obviously, it's one of the best educations I could have, you know, received, uh, made it an easy decision at that point in the process. Do you think you uh, are wasting that education by being a football coach instead of something uh Something else that uses your, I guess, I mean, you use your brain a lot as a football coach, but I feel like it's not the one, it's not a profession that requires the, the Princeton degree to get into. Yeah, maybe to the outside world, they probably say, oh, you know, you're not, you're wasting your degree. But I mean, along this process, every opportunity I've gotten, you know, they've mentioned how, oh, you're from Princeton. So it's helped me in this profession, even though um, maybe I could be doing something else. But I knew early on in college that football was what my real passion was. And, uh, he decided to break it to my parents at that point that I wanted to be a football coach. And they were like, well, why are we paying all this money for you to go to Princeton if you're just going to be a football coach? Um, but I think they would agree that it's worked out. Now, um, as a general advice, I mean, I imagine a lot of high school athletes in the back of their mind, they're thinking maybe one day if it doesn't work out to play in the NFL that I, I might want to be a coach. Um, do you think that if you knew for sure that you wanted to be a coach, um, that being a walk-on at Nebraska versus being um, being a uh, you know, a scholarship or whatever type of athlete at, at um, Princeton, do you think that one or other would have been a better path to becoming a, a college football coach? Uh, I mean, possibly, but I mean, nowadays when you look at all the coaches out there, like everybody's path is, is completely different. So it'd be really hard to, to say like at that point in your life, like, well, I should go to Nebraska because I want to be a football coach. Um, and even, you know, now looking back on it, I mean, they had coaching change, like the next year their head coach got fired and then a new staff came in and then that coach got fired. So there wasn't like this 
this coaching staff that I would had all these connections with because they knew people were coming the door every single, every single year down there. Um, and I also, I firmly believe now having gone to Princeton and then, you know, working there now, like the whole process of learning how to critically think and problem solve is like one of the biggest, biggest things you're going to learn in college. And I think Princeton does one of the best jobs you, you can get, you know, learning that at college. So that's definitely helped me, you know, be successful in coaching. So I wouldn't trade that in, um, for maybe going to a place where I can go get a physical education degree and, you know, you know, do all that stuff. Like I still think this is way more beneficial than that opportunity. Yeah. I think there's also like, I think a lot of athletes are probably overweighting their certainty that they would want to be a, a football coach. Um, and that you, they're not really closing the doors by, you know, pursuing like a degree that gives them more options. You know, it's not closing the football coaching door. Whereas like you were, you didn't go into coach at the end of the day, you didn't go into coaching cause you had to, or anything like that. You went to coaching cause you really wanted to. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, what I always tell recruits is come to Princeton because you know that no matter what you major in, you can do whatever the heck you want. It's yeah. not like I'm choosing Princeton because they have this major and that's going to lead to this job. It's like, I'm going to Princeton because I'm going to get that liberal arts degree and then I can go out and do whatever the heck I want in the world. Um, obviously, there's some things you may have to go get another degree for and whatnot, but um, all doors are open. Yeah, I think um, I think you used to call it the P-bomb, but, but it's like... Uh... <laughs> but, but I mean, it's when you have a, when you can tell someone you graduated from Princeton, it gives you, it like unlocks the door. It's the key. You know what I mean? And, and Princeton's not the only school on that list, but it's one of them. And it's, it's like one of the more powerful keys, you know, that opens the most doors, you know, it's a passport to a lot of places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the only place where, when I tell people, well, when I'm out recruiting and they see I have Princeton stuff on, the only place where they get confused is when I'm actually back home in Minnesota because there's a Princeton, Minnesota. So like multiple times I've been out recruiting and they're like, they're like, oh, are you a football coach? I'm like, yeah, I'm from Princeton. They're like, oh, Princeton High School? I was like, no, Princeton University, the one in New Jersey. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> how, many, uh, how, much of you, how many of the athletes when you first started recruiting them and you tell them you're from Princeton know that Princeton's in New Jersey? Uh, I'd say it's probably 50-50. Yeah, I, I would say it's 100 percent. They know it's on the East Coast, but they don't know exactly where it is on the East Coast. Yeah. Where are you recruiting this these days? Still out in the Midwest or somewhere new? So I have Pennsylvania. I have pretty much the entire Midwest. And then I have Hawaii and Alaska. How many trips have you got to take out to Hawaii? I'm going out. I'm going out to Hawaii uh, next week. That's awesome. Have you been out there before? I have not gone out there before, but we have uh, three guys on the team now from Hawaii. So uh, we got a nice little pipeline started. Well, that's great. I actually know nothing about recruiting in Hawaii, but but I imagine you know for them they've got to travel pretty far no matter where they have to go. And so, um, East Coast, West Coast, what's the difference? Exactly. It's it's a long flight either way. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um, well, I'm sure you'll have a great time. Uh, do you have enough time to go? Is it like one of those? Uh, I've done these trips before where like you fly in, you visit some schools, you fly out. I'm hoping that they're gonna give you a little bit more than that. Nope, that's it. That's it. I fly in on Sunday. I visit some schools on Monday. I'm out Monday afternoon. Ooh, that's a long ways to go. I feel like I feel like the, all the joy of that in my head about you recruiting Hawaii just went out the window. Yeah, I thought I was all pumped up when I booked the, the flight, and then I I just looked at the time to. I'm like, what am I doing? This is gonna be, <laughs> it's it's going to be horrible. I'm going to get adjusted slightly to the time, and then I'm going to head back to the Midwest and be all thrown off the rest of the week. Oh man. But uh, I imagine Alaska is not on the not on the travel list right now. Uh, I'm not making it to Alaska this year, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know how many athletes from Alaska are playing college football, but maybe you know because you've recruited. Is that like, uh, are there a handful? 
Uh, I, I, I couldn't answer that for you. I know uh, that there was a recruit a couple years ago who ended up going uh, to San Diego State who's from Alaska. And then I actually played with two guys from Alaska in college. One was a, a senior when I was a freshman, and then uh, one was a sophomore when I was a senior. So I do have a slight Alaska <laughs> connection with those two guys. Were those two guys related to one another or just uh, no, just they chance? Weren't. They weren't. And ironically, both of them ended up going back to Alaska after they graduated. Yeah, well, they're the only two people in Alaska with degrees from Princeton, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think about that. But, um, well, that's awesome. So, uh, you know, I know also, like, we're getting to summertime and camp season's coming up, and athletes always have, like, a million questions about camp. So um, what's your advice to athletes that are looking at the camp season? Well, I think the, the mega camps that are out there are definitely uh, uh, camps that they should strongly consider. And um, what do you mean by mega camp? Because that probably doesn't mean anything to most people. So, you know, there's there's camps where schools are going to host it and there's going to be 20 plus schools that will be at that camp. And you can get a lot of exposure to a lot of schools at that camp. And it may not even be every coach from that school, but, you know, every every camp does their own testing and whatnot and measurements. And where a lot of times that might be all the information a school might need to you know pull the trigger and offer a kid. Um, so just getting yourself at one of those and their coach sees your numbers, they know about you. Now they can talk to you and you get to meet the coach. Um, they're good. They're good to go to I'm like Northwestern runs a great camp, Chicago land showcase that, uh, you know, all, all the Ivy league schools will be at for sure. You know, they'll have multiple coaches at it. Um, and then from that outside of those, like the, what I always tell recruits is you want to combine the two lists, the list of schools that you have a lot of interest in with the list of schools that have shown you a lot of interest, combine that. And then you got to go physically to those, those camps and, you know, commit to the financial burden of going to those because that list combined are the schools that probably are the ones that you should focus your most energy on. And the best way to end up grabbing that offer or getting that interest from that school is by going to the camp. Cause ultimately like it's a two way street. We can say that we're really interested interest in you, but if you don't come see us, I take that as you're not really that interested in us. Otherwise you would get out here because um, we do get a ton of, ton of numbers at our camp. So, you know, it's hard for me to say no to somebody we work with at camp that I've gotten to know really well and take a guy from we, that we didn't see at camp who just says, oh, I'm really interested, but he's never actually come out to see us. Um, so that's, you gotta, you gotta weigh the, the ones that are interested in you, the ones you're interested in and combine that and make sure you get to those camps for sure. And then as a coach, how do you figure out which camps you're going to go to? Uh, I try to focus on camps where uh, there's going to be a lot of prospects there, but also kind of has my recruiting area selfishly. Um, that's why Chicago Land Showcase is great to go to. Um, but uh, we're kind of uh, changing our model and getting coaches out to all the, the higher academic uh, FBS schools and having coaches there so – we get to get more eyes on guys who maybe don't get to our campus, our campus for our camp, but at least we can know more about them. So when decision time comes, we can make a more educated, you know, decision on, on those recruits. Yeah, and it makes sense that you would prioritize the athletes that you got to see in person at your camp and show that level of interest. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, when signing day happens and you end up with your list of guys, um, what percentage of them are guys that were at the camp? Do you think? So we've been running those numbers every year. We're like around 70% of our team was yeah. at our camp. Um, that's probably very unique compared to some other schools. We just, we do a good job of 
getting guys to come to see us. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, we're selling an, an easy product to sell because Princeton is an amazing place. So, you know, I naturally, um, recruits want to come see us. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's when, if you're, if you're building the right culture for your program, you got to put some, you got to put some stock in like the guys that you get to work with in person and get to know over a full day, as opposed to, you know, just, you know, getting numbers on them. Um, from another camp or something like that. And do you think that that is equally true um, on how important that is or how much like you would, if you were like, say the head coach at various levels, would you hold that like as being the way that you would recruit or do you think it's different for different levels? I think it's different for different levels. And I think also it's different for just uh, head coaches preferences. Um, you know, they just, they mean, they may be more caught up in, um, you know, who, who else is recruiting this kid and the, the offers he might have or the numbers that he's put out there at, you know, the opening or something like that. Whereas uh, our model is, you know, kind of built itself around about getting to know the kids and knowing that, you know, maybe they are uh, right now a, a, a slightly lesser player than this other recruit, but we got to know him over the whole day. And we know that with how we develop guys, he's going to end up being the better player in the long run um, with, you know, how we do things. Yeah. It's like, um, it's almost the difference between hiring someone just off their resume versus hiring someone that came in for like a full day interview. Exactly. Exactly. You're just just cutting down on the, uh, on the odds of, of being wrong. Even if it means that like, maybe like you have a better sense that their potential isn't as high, but you have a better, you kind of know like the bottom of what you're getting in a lot of ways too. And you're, you're less likely to end up with a lot of like the, the type of athletes that never make it. Exactly. Exactly. And probably is how you probably how you end up with 10 offensive linemen that can all play is because you're you've seen them all in person. So you all have you have you're not taking like I can think of like a handful of guys that we've taken on scholarship that we've had to take late on the process, you know, as boards fell apart. And, you know, like a lot of times it was like the kind of things that you probably would have discovered at a camp, whether it was a physical thing or just like a maturity mental thing um, that probably, you know, would have discounted them. And you would have ended up with less of those, even if you might have ended up, you know, even if you might have missed on some, you know, based on film, you thought athletically they were good enough. Um, but like, if you had seen them, you would have actually known and you might end up with guys that maybe weren't as great on film, but were really the guys you wanted. Definitely. And you, you feel very good when pl- other recruits go to other schools in the league and then they you never see him playing on Saturdays. You're like, oh, we dodged the bullet there because we were really high on him in film, but he didn't come to our camp and we moved on and it worked out for us. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, that, that's gotta be a big thing. So yeah, I would think that, um, most division one schools are probably in that somewhere in that like 50, 50 to like 70, 30 range on like people coming to their camp. Now, some schools might have like a harder time getting people to camp. I'm not exactly sure which ones those are. Like I'm picturing like maybe a school that doesn't recruit in state very much because the in-state talent isn't great. Like I have no idea what New Mexico state looks like. Right. But I imagine they have to recruit a lot out of state and it's probably hard for them to get guys to come to camp and they probably have to go to the USC's and the Texas's to, to like get into their recruiting territory. Um, but I imagine for most of those division one schools, but I would think for a division three school, they're definitely getting less than 50% of their roster to come to their camp. I mean, isn't that what you would think? Absolutely. And that's, I think they, they can though clean up at the higher level camps. I mean, if, uh, there's their schools who come to our camp and they they make a killing at our camp just because there's just so many there's so many prospects there and we can't take all of them 
but they're all, you know, end up being good players and they're also really good students. So like the high academic school, division three schools that work our camp, they, they get a ton of prospects um, out of our camp. So like, I think for division three, it's more about where can I go to see the most prospects? And it's probably not at their own camp as opposed to like getting to another camp and spending all day watching that kid. Yeah, and that actually, like talking about the the good academic kids that are coming to your camp, what are the what does it take to get into an Ivy League school? I imagine it's different for athletes and and uh, non athletes, but how does that work? So it's it's the basically they're looking at GPA and test scores, and obviously you want to have the highest GPA you can have, and you want your test scores to be as high as possible, and it's kind of a it's a tiered system uh, based off of those that puts you in different levels, which equals more spots for you. So when I talk to recruits, I tell them, you know, you know, for in your best interest, you, it's, it's best to get as high as you can, because that's going to equal more spots for you and makes it easier for us. And when the decision-making process happens, you versus somebody else, when you're, you're higher academically, you make it easier to take yourself as opposed to the other one, because now you just freed up a lower spot. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's this information all out there. It's like about 30 spots a year for, uh, all the Ivy League schools. So, you know, you end up with 120 over four years. Right. And if someone is good enough to just get into an Ivy League school, basically on their own, Princeton on their own, then it doesn't fill one of your spots or how, or you just have like a lot of those. We get, we get some walk-ons, uh, for sure. Uh, they're uh, not, uh, it's not, it's not a ton though. It's probably like one, one a year. Um, and they, those do exist. They seem to be coming from Pennsylvania a lot on our team. We got a couple of Pennsylvania guys. Um, and they, we've had guys who've, you know, just been a part of the team and helped help the helped with scout team and for four years. But we also have guys who've ended up walking on and they ended up starting for us. I had a tight end who was from Wisconsin when I was coaching tight ends, who was uh, an all Ivy guy 2013 when we won the championship. He started out as a walk on. He actually didn't walk on to the sophomore year. He didn't play football his freshman year and then decided he wanted to come back out and play. Um, so, I mean, we've had all levels of players. And, you know, the one thing that all the kids have in common is they're you know, obviously very strong students who've tested very well and they're all well-rounded, whether you're a recruited player or a, a walk-on, they're all well, well-rounded because ultimately admissions has the final say on any, any recruit we, we get, we get in our class, they, they have the final say. So, you know, they're going to determine if that student's going to have success at Princeton um, and ultimately lets them know that they're getting into school. It's not coming from the football program. And then what's the, I'm trying to think of like what it takes athletically different, like how to quantify the difference in an athlete that is like 4.0 with a 1600 and what, what you guys would take athletically versus someone that's at the bottom of that, which I don't know exactly what that is. I imagine somewhere like a 3.0, 1100 is like probably near the bottom. Tell me if I'm crazy, but, um, it's probably higher than that. Like a 3.3.5 and 1100. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So like, so the difference between like what it would take to like athletically, what the difference is between those types of guys, I don't know how to best quantify that. Maybe it's like in, um, how often they become starters or if it's like, um, I don't know, like, I don't know, try to find a way to help me to understand the difference there. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, anyone lower academically, they're they're probably going to have to be difference makers for you early on in their career, as opposed to, you know, some really high academic kids, maybe are guys who develop over a couple of years and help you later on in their career. There's definitely that. Does that help? Yeah. Of, like, but, is it like, yeah, I can imagine that. Like you're basically saying, like, if someone's near the border, border at the bottom, they have to you guys have to be thinking that they're like going to be one of your top few kids in your class. Right. 
Yeah. And then if they're near the back, you're probably thinking that that there are guys that are, you know, maybe like a one, like more like senior starters, like special teams kind of guys, like like role players, uh, scout team guys early on. Now it doesn't always work out that way. Obviously, yeah. obviously, we've your had best a lot of success actually. Yeah, we, we we've we just gotten we've had a lot of success the last couple of years with you know a lot of our highest guys have been high academic guys too. So obviously that helps your class out a lot when that happens because that makes makes it so you can get some other guys who are still difference makers, but the high academic kids are also difference makers. Right. Instead of getting three or four difference makers, you get seven or eight or something like that because you got to get some of them in your other, your other bands. Right. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's pretty helpful. At what, at what level would you say like, at what, um, like GPA and test score would you say like most kids would, would be too low to go to an Ivy league school or is that like too hard to say? I think that's too hard to say. I'll just, I'll just say this. When I'm talking to recruits, uh, junior of their or spring of their junior year, I talk I talk to them about how you know that first time you take the test, you want to be you know around 1,200, and then hopefully you go up from there. If you're taking the ACT, you want to be around you know 25, and hopefully you go up from there. So that's kind of like baseline. If you're around that number, that may not be the number that you need to be at for it to be in the right uh, tier for yourself, but you know you're in the ballpark. And, you know, obviously the, the biggest thing is, you know, with admissions, like they're, they're going to ultimately make decisions. So you, the one thing that all of them can control, maybe some of them aren't great test takers, but they can control what their transcript looks like. So if they're doing well in their classes, um, that, that obviously is going to help them more than anything when it comes to admissions. Gotcha. So like if someone had a thousand on the SAT, you're probably not going to take them seriously at recruiting unless that went up. I'd say that's accurate. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, I think that that, that kind of information, I think is a good level setter for a lot of the athletes that are out there. So, um, and I would say, I would say to all recruits, they should, they should take both tests because you never know you might do better on one or the other. Yeah. yeah I so think you, I would say the advice that we give guys, um, and you can find a lot of this stuff in our articles. This one was on, um, on what to do when your grades aren't good enough, but really it's, um, it's regardless of whether or not your grades are good enough, you need to be taking the SAT and the ACT both as early as possible and then just figure out which one you're better at and then take that one again and again and again until you get like the best scores you can because you can like literally take your best score from each section and then add them up and, and you know, even from different tests and that could be a huge advantage and that I know that helps a lot of people. Absolutely. I, the one bad, inf- one bad advice that a lot of kids get from their high school is to wait until you know, late in their junior year to take the test. And I, I, that that just bothers me because that might be the case with, you know, non-Ivy League schools where it's not as big of a deal. But for us, like waiting that long does not benefit you at all. It's better to take it early, get a score on file, see how you're doing. And then, like you said, make your decision on which test I'm going to put time into now moving forward and take it again and again after that if you need to. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty fair advice that if you're an athlete, it doesn't matter what school you're looking at you should you should be taking it as many times as you can as early as possible there's no score that can hurt you they're exactly. you know, they're going to take your best one of of sections and then they're going to throw away the rest as an athlete because you have like that coach that is like basically like bringing your 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 profile to the school and they're going to help to make you to like make it as good as possible they want they're trying to find reasons to get you in not trying to find reasons to say no exactly exactly so well that's that's really good um you know, one of the other things I want to ask you about was before you went to Princeton, um, you spent some time coaching in the NFL. You were with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
And what's, um, I guess, what's that like? What's the difference? What do you find to be like the big differences between coaching in college and coaching in the NFL? Uh, I think, well, the biggest thing was just you have a, a more finished product in the NFL. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys had been in the, in the NFL longer than I had been coaching when I got there. And there wasn't a lot of the uh, diving into the techniques um, at a level that you have to at the college level, because the college level, you know, you're getting these, you know, high school seniors that come in, they, they, they got to know that they got to learn the technique and you got to develop them and put that to muscle memory where as NFL, like these guys, they've been playing so long and they have, you know, certain techniques they use and they know that, that they're successful for them. So you're not necessarily going to start tweaking those techniques um, within reason. Obviously, if it's just grossly messed up, then you have to do something like that. But um, that was one really big thing that I noticed. Um, and then also just, you know, th they're, that's their full-time job. So like the amount of time you get to spend with them is, you know, unbelievable. Like the amount of meeting time you get with them, the amount of film time they put in on their own, um, it was at a, just a whole different level. And what's the draw that brought you back to college? Uh, I just, I like dealing with college kids personally. I mean, I just, I enjoyed being around them. They, they were much more receptive to me as a coach too. Obviously I was a young guy with Tampa Bay and they didn't, some of those guys, they didn't want to hear from me. I mean, how, how am I going to tell uh, Rondé Barber what to do? He's been playing for 19 years. What, what do I have to bring to the table to tell him to do? Um, and I just, you know, the whole reason I got into coaching is because I, 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 I enjoyed um, how, you know, the impact I could have on these kids, just like my coaches did, how my dad did because he was my coach. And that was lost definitely when I was in Tampa. That, that There was nothing – that wasn't really part of the, the deal. It was a business. Um, so just getting back to, you know, just having an impact on the – those college age kids, you know, helping them, you know, growing to men was uh, much more appealing to me. And, and just the college, the college game, the college game day atmosphere, I really enjoyed. It was, you know, even at a smaller school, you know, NFL, you know, these big stadiums, but like, it's like college game day, just is just a completely different thing. Yeah. And like, I imagine the locker room is like just such a different experience. Oh, absolutely. I never, I would never go into the player's locker room. Like I am in, <laughs> That, 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 when I was in Tampa Bay, I was after practice, after after practice, after a game, like I wouldn't even go in the locker room to even talk to the players. Whereas in college, like you're talking to them because, you know, if you had a tough loss, you know, consoling them or if you have a big win, you're like celebrating with them. Like that was NFL. No, never. I, it just never even crossed my mind to do that. I just didn't feel like I had that type of relationship with those guys. Yeah, I've always heard that the players' locker room doesn't feel that different after a win or a loss in the NFL. Where in college, I mean, it's like night and day. At least my experience. Absolutely. I mean, I I I didn't experience it, but I imagine that's probably the case. You know, um, whereas college, like you, there, you get all levels of emotion depending on how the game went from those kids, and you know, it's good to be part of that and to talk to those guys who need to be picked up after a tough game. Yeah. When, when high school athletes get invited to all-star games, um, you know, I know I have my opinions of them from when I was a college coach and still today. Uh, but what do you, what do you think of them when, what would you tell an athlete if they get, you know, an email or a letter that says, uh, you got invited to this all-star game? First of all, I don't think they should ever have to pay for an all-star game. So if they have to pay to go to an all-star game, that's not an all-star game that you would want to be a part of. Um, but outside of that, like, 
all like the state all-star games or things like that, that are, you know, like it's kind of like recognition for the high school career head. I'm all for it. You know, they want to play one more game of football. I have no problems with that. And, you know, I know some people might say like, well, they're worried about injuries, but I mean, those injuries could happen with them just working out in the summer, getting ready to come, come join us. So, you know, I'm all for it. I think any, any, uh, any opportunity to have to play the game of football is good, especially obviously when they're coming in as freshmen, you know, they get, they get to practice before the game, they get playing the game. I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, uh, I got this email yesterday, um, from, uh, David Schumann, NUC all American game. And they invited me to uh, play. They told me I was selected and that, I, I they wanted me to play December 27th, uh, through the 30th. Uh, obviously this is an all-star game that I'm going to have to pay for to attend. And also my family's gonna have to buy tickets as well. But if I sign up now, then my parents are going to, uh, be able to get tickets for a reduced price. Um, and it just like, it just shocks me. Like, well, first of all, obviously I am not an all-star high school athlete. I never was a high school all-star athlete. Um, I certainly am not now. And I just like, I am looking at this email and it's, it's like, it, it, it is grinding me. Cause I just know that there are athletes all over the country that are celebrating that they're getting this email and they probably, you know, some of them probably come from families that can totally afford it. And it's a fun vacation, but they're also probably totally confused as to what's going on. But there are also families that can't afford it, but will scrape it together to go because they think this is some big honor that also this 35-year-old got invited to because I'm on some email list. Um, and I'm just like, I just think that stuff is such a ripoff. And I, I don't know how these people sleep sleep at night knowing what they're doing. Um, you know, it'd be one thing if they said like, just so you know, like this isn't an actual honor, but if you want to come and play, it could be a fun experience and all these other things. Um, but they're obviously lying to these people. What do you think about oh, yeah. stuff I mean, like that? Oh, uh, it's, it's, I, I, there's a ton of them too. There's a ton of them. There's a ton of them out there. It's not good. I, I would hope that people would recognize the second they had to pay for it, that it's not something that is legitimate and they would hopefully move on from that and not actually consider it. But obviously there's still these, there's more of them popping up. So people will continue to pay for these and go to these. I'm hoping that it's just kids who just think they have the means to do it and they want to do it and the parents are okay spending the money. It's not kids who are scraping together every single free dollar they have to go and, and play in this All-Star game thinking this is going to have an impact on their recruiting, you know, because ultimately, you know, I've never seen a single one of those All-Star games and watched it to evaluate a player in it. That's the reality is one, I couldn't, I wouldn't even know where to look for them. And two, most decisions are being already being made at that point. It's not like this all-star game is going to make a difference for you. Yeah. I, I, already, I don't think it's that realistic to expect high school athletes and their parents to know the difference though. I mean, I guess that's ultimately like one of the many things that I'm working on at Verified is to number one, not charge high school athletes and their families a penny for anything. Um, number two, try to provide the advice to prevent them from wasting their money on bullshit like this. Right. And then three, one of the other exciting things that we're doing now, um, which is brand new, we're probably going to be ready to release, you know, starting beta versions of it very shortly, is uh, something that we're calling the college selector. And what that is, is we're allowing athletes ability to answer like a questionnaire of like 50 questions. Um, and after they answer that questionnaire, then we give them the list of the schools that we think that they should reach out to. So essentially the way how this is supposed to work is... I am an expert on football recruiting, right? I know 
I know a lot about all the different schools. I know a lot about all the things that kids should be using to make decisions. Uh, but I also understand that kids should be making decisions based on like their own set of criteria, what they're interested in, what's important to them. And so I try to, I came up with a questionnaire that said, it's like literally like if I got in a phone call with my brother or my cousin, what are the things that I would want to ask them to help them to make a decision? Um, and then um, the benefit is not only do I have my my expertise to figure out what to do with all that information, I actually also have databases of tons of information on these different college colleges and college programs uh, to actually help them to make the perfect match uh, based on their interests and their ability level. And then I'm helping to point them in the right direction. So I'm really excited about this. I think that, you know, in, in like all this research, all the stuff that I've been doing with Verify, the one thing I've learned is, is and I guess I kind of always knew this as a coach, is that athletes go end up going to a school because the coach called them and and really like in many cases and not because it's actually the school that's the best fit for them i think they probably end up at the school that is literally the best fit for them probably like one out of a hundred times because they don't know about what schools are actually the best fit so this is hoping to clear that gap and give them a list of schools that they could actually research and, and narrow the list down to something reasonable and it, it probably includes a lot of schools that they've never heard of but it's the right list of the schools they've never heard of, not the schools that just happen to call them, you know, on the phone of the schools that they've never heard of. You know, if you're obviously yeah, if you're a division one guy. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think that'd be helpful for the athletes? Absolutely. Any way to, to focus their energy on the schools that they should be looking at is good because like you said, like, if they're going to make decisions just because, Oh, this school showed an interest in me. Well, they know the schools that they should be looking at. Uh, they can be proactive now and make sure that they're getting in communication with those schools. And on next thing you know, those are those schools are reaching out to them. So now they're hearing from the right schools based off of the criteria that's going to be created off of what you're working off of to to have them focus their energy on certain ones. Sure, and it goes both ways. You know, I, I get the advantage of once I once I understand um, what an athlete's like. You know, it helps me to to you know let the schools know that that they'd be a great fit for them as well. And it, and it helps to, to match them up with the right schools on both ends. Definitely. Definitely. Well, cool. Um, I don't know. I guess what, uh, what questions do you have? Anything uh, going on? Anything you want to know about? I was going to ask you about uh, verified and you just filled me in some of the new things you have going on with that. So um, sounds like exciting stuff. Yeah, definitely. A ton of exciting stuff. Well, um, Andy, thanks so much for the time. This has been really great. I, I know that this is going to be really helpful to a lot of the athletes out there. So really appreciate it. Uh, and we should we should definitely do it again after you guys go 10-0 and 0 again and, um, and keep kicking butt. Well, that was great. There aren't too many people that have their dream job, but Andy's one of them. I'm really glad he came on and was able to share all that he had with you. That's the type of conversation I had in mind when I started this podcast. So I hope you found it helpful. Thanks for listening. Should have a new Playmaker's Edge out soon. And if you're enjoying this podcast or the new Playmaker's Edge, please share them. The word is spreading and your help in that is making it possible to keep doing this. See you next time.